If you happen to have a uh, prayer card with you, uh, a prayer card that you filled out, then we can collect that now. Um, and if you're not organized enough, or you think of something later on, we'll pick that up uh, again at the end. But uh, I'll give you a couple of opportunities at that. So. All right. So if you've been keeping an eye on the community garden out there, you'll notice that it seems like every week there's something new going on. You know, it's uh, just that time of year and we're almost, we've got a temporary fence down the end and uh, I think by next Sunday we'll hopefully have a permanent uh, fence down the, down the end. Uh, so we're, we've been, another one has been donated and so that'll enable us to finish off the, the fence around the garden. Which means the deer will go hungry, but you know they'll uh, they'll adapt. I'm, I have no no doubt. Uh, so uh, we're we're very happy with with that and uh, with the participation that we've had in the garden uh, so far this year. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, the sermon series topic uh, light in my darkness and um, we've looked at over the two weeks the first week we looked at the uh, Pharisees who sought to find their way out of darkness by um, a detailed observance of God's law and they said if we can just get all the details right then God will be will be happy with us and then we contrasted them the second week with the Samaritans, who um, were also descendants of, of Abraham. They were you know, Israelites, but they had blended their worship of Yahweh with the worship of immigrants who had resettled their pagan immigrants, and they, they just uh, blended the um, pagan worship with the worship they remembered of Yahweh and uh, came up with an alternative to the worship in Jerusalem. And they had their own temple and, and different things. And so we had these two competing groups of, of people who are worshipping Yahweh and they're, they can't agree on who's... They both thought they were true, the true worshippers. And uh, Jesus, we saw, invited each group to leave their position and to follow him. So today we're going to move in a slightly different direction. The series name, titled The Light in My Darkness, is, uh, kind of leads us to, to this week spending some time just thinking about darkness. Okay? Uh, that, that's not usually what we come to, to church for. I get that. Um, so maybe you just picked the wrong Sunday to be here. Um, usually we, we want to say, hey, I've, I've experienced plenty of darkness all week, and uh, we're really looking for some light. Uh, but I think that as we're going to move through this series, if we're going to get anything out of it, we have to at least spend a little bit of time acknowledging darkness. We need to be careful that as Christians, we, we don't turn into Pollyanna. Right? I'm not sure. I know Pollyanna is like a really old 
book and a really old movie. So I really don't know how many people get the reference. Um, but Pollyanna was a girl in her community who just went around and always saw the good in things. Right? And uh, I think sometimes those people are irritating and unrealistic. <laughs> and, and so we need to be careful that we don't just um, be oblivious to problems and darkness and pretend that there is no such thing as hurt uh, in, in our lives or in our world. Uh, we, we need to be in touch with, with reality. But darkness can come at us from a couple of different directions. Sometimes darkness impacts us because of people, because of events, because of forces that are outside of ourselves. As oppressive of this, as this darkness can be, as, as painful as this darkness can be, we can recognize the cause of it in most cases. A drunk driver causing a car accident. A downsizing at work causing unemployment and financial hardship. A boss who micromanages, causing nervousness and um, insecurity. Maybe macro changes in the economy, causing uncertainty and, again, perhaps financial uh, changes. A medical di diagnosis that we don't want. An election outcome that we didn't hope for. And so this type of darkness can change our lives dramatically. But it's external. It's a darkness that we can fight against, that we can push back against, that we can recognize a cause and that we can take action to change it. A cause that's often easily identified. In the ancient world, there was a source of chaos. The sea represented turmoil. It represented chaos and uncertainty. And you can sort of see why. If you live on land, right, it doesn't go anywhere unless you live in California. Right? And, and so you, you, you feel good about where you are. But when you get out there on the, on the sea, unless you're Peter and Jesus in the, is in the vicinity, you step outside your boat, you're just lost. Right? And, and so your existence there depends on something solid under your feet. It's uncertain. It's chaotic. You don't know, you can't see what's under the water, but you know that there are great beasts, great monsters, animals bigger than the boat that you're on that endanger your boat. And so you, you know the storms that arise and how those storms, even if you're in a boat, put your safety at risk. You know how lives are lost in a storm at sea. Now, if you're on solid land, in most cases, a storm comes, a storm blows over, and... It's very low risk of, of life uh, from that experience. 
And so land is seen as, as stable, land is seen as organized, land is seen as dependable and reliable, and the sea is chaotic. And the sea is where the monsters come from. And so it, it was something that was outside. I put a... Uh, no, you can't see that on the screen. If you can see the television and the wing, you can see it. It's, a, it's an octopus that looks pretty scary. Some of the creatures that we see in the, um, in the, in the ocean you know, are terrifying. Like if we encountered them every day uh, just walking down the street, you know, it, it would be, be scary. But we see in um, Genesis chapter 1, the creation account there, we see this concept there also. You see when it, the very first verse there begins that um, darkness was over the face of the deep. Right? That the, the God's spirit hovered over the waters. Right? And, and we're not told that there was a creative act before that, which is interesting because it begins sort of in, in verse 3. Well, sorry, God created the heavens and the earth and then it says the earth was formless, it was empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So that's, that was the raw materials, if you will, that God had to work with, was water. And um, it, it was chaos, right? There's nothing there. There's form, no form. There's emptiness. There's darkness. And that's where it begins. And then the first three days... The first thing that God of creation, the first thing that God does is turn on the light. Okay. And, and so now the, the darkness that's hovering over that water is gone. It's a little less scary right, without the darkness. And then on the, the second day, we're told that uh, he separates the waters. Okay? The waters above and waters below. And, uh, and then the the third day, he separates the water from the land. He, he puts boundaries on the water. He, he puts boundaries on the chaos. He gathers the water into oceans. And, and the land rises up and, and it's established and it has boundaries also. And so God has taken what was chaotic at the very beginning and organized it. He's made sense of the chaos. He's provided light in the darkness. He's calmed or contained the monsters. Well, there's a story in the Bible that I think builds on this sort of understanding of the ocean and how it works. The story of Jonah illustrates this idea of an external monster from the darkness as well as any other event in the Bible. Jonah catches a boat that is traveling west. And after a while, a fierce storm hits the boat. Jonah recognizes that this is God's punishment on him. And so he tells the sailors to throw him into the sea to appease God and save their own lives and the boat. After some reluctance, they do this. And at that point, Jonah is swallowed by a fish. And so we have 
kind of all the classic elements of this type of scenario of, of the chaos and of the, um, the darkness and the monsters, right? The chaos and the waters with the storm, the, the uh, God's involvement, but then the, the monster from the deep that comes and uh, takes Jonah, swallows Jonah. I don't know exactly what it looked like. Maybe, maybe it was one of these. But you see, Jonah had caught a boat that was traveling west because God had told him to travel east. And not just to travel east, but to travel east and to tell the enemy of Israel, to tell the Assyrians that they needed to repent or be destroyed. Jonah didn't like the Assyrians. So he thought if that message got lost in the mail, that they would just be destroyed. And so he took the message west instead of east. In the belly of the fish, Jonah has what we might refer to as a come to Jesus moment. In chapter 2 and verse 7, Jonah prays, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. God had successfully caught Jonah's attention. And so God arranged for the fish to vomit Jonah onto the shore, and Jonah this time, given a second chance, heads east. He heads to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it seems that Jonah has learnt his lesson. Don't disobey God. If you do, you'll end up in darkness until you cry out to God and he'll rescue you. But Jonah fell into a trap that I think each of us can also be susceptible to. Jonah thought that God was upset about his disobedience. And that's certainly a problem. However, there was a bigger problem that was going on in this story. You see, the, the fish was an external problem. The storm, the fish. It could be identified easily. And, and so when, when Jonah finds himself inside a fish, he goes, yeah, I can recognize the problem. Now he has to decide how to respond to the problem. He could despair, he could give up hope, and he could just wish his life away there in the belly of a fish. No one ever knows about the story of Jonah. Or he could turn to God. And so when we have these external forces, external um, darkness closing in on us, we have these opportunities to decide how we're going to respond. And, and sometimes it's simple, sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it, it's not. But um, this is the, the circumstance that Jonah finds himself in. But, but we can get so 
focused on these external sources of darkness that we miss the more serious source of darkness. Because while Jonah's disobedience was a problem, there's a question, a deeper question, to say, Jonah, why did you disobey? Jonah, God has a problem with your heart. And in my Bible, the heading above the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, and yours probably says something like this, mine says, Jonah's anger at the Lord's compassion. Jonah's anger at the Lord's compassion. You see, Jonah was angry because God didn't hate the same people that he hated. Jonah was angry because God loved the people that Jonah hated. Jonah was angry because he knew that God would love the people that he hated. And so Jonah had a heart problem. It was Jonah's hatred of the Assyrians that prompted him to disobey God. And even though God rescued him from the darkness inside the fish, the darkness still remained inside Jonah. And so when Jonah saw the city of Nineveh repent from their wrongdoing, he goes there, he delivers his mail, he tells his message, and the people say, this is terrible, we need to change. And they, they mourn and they grieve and they repent and they cry out to God and they ask for his, his mercy and his salvation. And Jonah didn't celebrate. Instead, he got mad with God. And three times he told God that the repentance of the Assyrians made him want to die. That's a heart problem, isn't it? Like, I don't know what the Assyrians had done to him, but I want you to think, if, if you're in a, a war zone, if you have seen some atrocities, if you have lost family members, if, you know, there may be circumstances where we want to see that oppressor punished, to, to have done to them what was done to, to us. And to see them forgiven just doesn't sit right. So maybe we're not that far from Jonah ourselves. The storm and the fish had been significant problems. No one should underestimate them, right? They were life-threatening problems in their own right, each in their own right. They could have taken Jonah's life. They were significant. They caused him a lot of panic, a lot of fear, and, and justifiably. Right? So what, nothing I'm saying is saying, oh, that darkness that was external, let's just minimize that. That wasn't a real problem. That wasn't a real issue. Yes, it was. But having got through that, we're confronted with another darkness, the inner darkness. And so here's where we bring it back to ourselves. 
You see, Jonah's not as unique as we make him out to be. Right Now, as long as we make Jonah a VBS story about a fish and, you know, um, maybe sing songs about in the belly of a whale, I don't know. But uh, as long as it's about that, then we can say, oh, yeah, right, there's all sorts of monsters out there that are causing me harm. How am I going to respond to that? How am I going to react? To that. And, and so that's an important message because the, the message is that the external darkness can be handled. The monsters can be identified and defeated. They can be resisted. But when we realize that Jonah is consumed by his hatred and anger even more than he was consumed by the fish, maybe we can see ourselves in Jonah. Because the darkness that, inside, that is inside us is the real danger in our lives. We can change, we can modify our behavior, but God's not impressed if our heart isn't transformed. Because ultimately, our behavior will reflect our hearts. But we can keep that darkness hidden away for a long time, can't we? You ever done that? You got something that's bothering you, something you've done, and you just like, you know, I'll just keep that on the down low. Okay? I got this struggle, I got this situation that I don't handle, but the people close to me don't know that, and let's just keep it that way. But it does come to the surface eventually. And this is why the, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. Jesus could say to those who are there, he says, you know that the law says you shall not murder. It's behavior. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That's the heart. You see, Jesus says, if you've been trying to um, keep the details of God's law and you think you'll please God in that manner, he says, that's, that's good. Right? That's good. But he says, it's not enough because hating someone and just not pulling the trigger and murdering them, that doesn't mean that you're in a good place. And, and so... I think Jesus understands this, that it's, it's not just our actions, it's our hearts. Well, I know Jesus understands it. The question is whether we can. And I know Jesus understands it because Jesus had some personal experience to apply his teaching in Matthew 5. Surprisingly, Matthew 5 comes right after Matthew 4. Matthew 4 comes right after Matthew, you guessed it, 3. At the end of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And it's this highlight moment. Uh, he's accepting his commission. He's accepting his purpose on earth to, to go into ministry, to, to take on the, the role of being the Messiah, proclaiming the kingdom of God has, has arrived, to, to fighting the forces of darkness. And, and he, he begins this by 
identifying with humanity by going to John, by being baptized. And at that moment, uh, as he, he sort of launches into to this, he receives the Holy Spirit, uh, comes down on him in the form of a dove, and a, a voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm very pleased. Listen to him. Wow. <laughs> right? Wow. Uh, I, I tell you, like when I graduated from seminary, uh, you know, and I was ready to go into ministry full time now. Yeah, it wasn't like that. <clears throat> yeah. It was walk across the stage, here's a piece of paper. Okay, thanks. We won't send you a bill next month. <laughs> and, and so Jesus has this wonderful moment validating who he is and what he's about to do, how much he's loved. And then he's led. That same Holy Spirit that came down on him like a dove at his baptism now leads him in chapter 4 out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days. He contemplates his relationship with God, his purpose. He spends time in the Scripture. And at the end of this 40 days, Satan appears to test him, to tempt him. To see if he can um, derail everything that Jesus is trying to accomplish at the very beginning. But I want you to notice how the temptations that Satan throws at Jesus are not temptations of external darkness. They're temptations that challenge the purity of his heart. The first one, after 40 days of fasting, if you, as the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And, and I know oftentimes we, we wrestle with that. How is this a, a temptation? But the temptation is that Jesus will use his powers for his own benefit. Is that, will I use the Holy Spirit just to make me more comfortable? Or am I here to love and to serve others and to share God's love with others? And so even though it's a, a question about food and turning rocks into bread, it's a question about his appetites. Is his life going to be ruled by his appetites and by his desires? Or is it going to be ruled by his purpose and his mission to serve others? The second temptation takes place as they miraculously transport to the highest point of the temple. And Satan is here again questioning challenging Jesus' identity. Remember at his baptism, his identity was just confirmed. You are my beloved son. But now Satan's saying, if you are the Son of God. You might remember there are some people that say something very similar when at the end of his life on the cross. Right? Who are you really? If you are the Son of God, he says, throw yourself off the temple. Right? And, and so the reason, I, I think, the reason Satan does this is Satan knows that in Psalm 91, there's this um, prediction or this promise that God will protect his Messiah from physical hurt. Okay? So he says, hey, jump off the temple and a 
an angel will come and catch you. God won't let you, you know, let your ministry, let your mission be over before it begins. Like, go for it. Maybe you'll fly. That'd be cool. And so he says, if you're the son of God, like prove it, demonstrate it, prove it to yourself, prove it to me, prove it to other people. Jump off the temple. Land on your feet. Be safe. That'll do it. The temptation is aimed at Jesus' doubts. Are you really who God says you are? The quickest way to know that is to jump. The third temptation. Satan says all of this as they look out over the world. Over the all of this, he says, I will give you if you bow down and worship me. We might say, why would Jesus ever bow down and worship Satan? That just doesn't even seem like a temptation. But I think the temptation is not about worshiping Satan. The temptation is knowing the difficulties, knowing the hardship, knowing the suffering that's going to be ahead of you. What if I give you a way to gather followers, to gather disciples? You can own all of these without the hardship, without the pain, without the disappointment. What if I show you a shortcut? And you'll still have followers. You'll still be famous. You'll, you'll still have people around you. You'll still rule over them. You came to have the kingdom of God. You'll have a kingdom. All these nations will be yours. You just need to bow down and worship me and I'll give it to you. Okay? So the, the, the temptation there is the, the darkness. Is the darkness in Jesus that says, yeah, I would like the easy way out. You say, no, Jesus doesn't want the easy way out. But remember Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane? He says, just as he's about to, the night before he's going to the cross, knowing that he's going to the cross, he says, Father, if there's any other way, can you please show it to me? And so Satan here at the very beginning is saying, let me show you another way. It was a temptation. for Jesus to take the shortcut. And, and so each of these, when you look at them, it's not the circumstances. Jesus had fasted for 40 days, sure, but Satan's not, you know, when we think of the story of Job, it's, you know, boils, it's, you know, circumstances, things that are happening around him and to him. It's these external events. But here, it's just, hey, prove who you are. Prove who you are. Use your power for yourself. Satisfy your hunger. All right? Take care of yourself first. So it's selfishness, it's identity, and it's finding the easy way. They're all questions of character for Jesus to answer. You see, the greatest darkness is inside ourselves. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at some specific temptations that I think we all face in, in various to various degrees.
But I encourage you to use this time as an opportunity to practice some introspection. You see, it's always easier to see the sins in the world, to see the sins in other people's lives than it is to point finger at the person in the mirror. And so if you know of darkness in your life, if you know of places that, that sin has a foothold, if it's eating you up, then you need to make it right with God. You see, we can't get rid of darkness on our own. I think that's, that's the whole reason that Jesus came to earth. Right? It's the whole reason that Jesus went to the cross is because we can't get rid of darkness on our own. And so while the details of that may be between you and God, very often we need help to make the necessary changes in our lives, right? Because if we say, I've struggled with, with this, I've struggled with that for, for all these years, then, then you've been working at it for yourself, by yourself for a long time. If you leave here today and you're still going to work on it by yourself, you'll probably get the same outcome. And so we take it to God, but there's also an opportunity to involve other people. Because when we love each other, then we care for each other, we help each other out of the darkness. The thing is, that when we help each other, we're not helping someone that's weaker than us. We're just helping someone with a different darkness than we have. And so I want to encourage you that if you would like the, me, if you'd like the church to pray with you this morning, then in just a moment I'll ask you to raise your hand and I'll, I'll do that. But I want to make one last observation. While Satan's temptation of Jesus exposed Jesus to darkness, exposed Jesus to some of his inner demons, his inner temptations, it wasn't inevitable that Jesus would give in. You see, sometimes I think we say, oh, that's just who I am. Right? The darkness has been part of our lives for so long that, that we just say that's who I am. Right? And it's inevitable that we give in to it. But it wasn't inevitable for Jesus and it's not inevitable for us either. Jesus resisted the temptations. And in this way, the darkness actually produced something good in Jesus' life. It's cemented in his mind, his identity as the Son of God. Yes. It cemented the mission that lay ahead of him. He, it, it cemented what that looked like. Because the temptation was, if you're the Son of God, well, Jesus is saying, no, I am the Son of God, but I don't need to prove it to you in that way. 
I don't need to prove it to myself. I don't need to prove it to anyone. I've heard it from God. I know that. And so that temptation, that hardship, it, it, he walked away from that wilderness experience stronger and more committed than he walked in because he'd encountered that darkness. I think likewise, our darkness, our monsters and dragons that live in that darkness can become weaknesses that we live with. But that give us strength rather than debilitating us. How do we, how do we process them? How do we move forward with our struggles? Just as it takes darkness for us to see the stars, sometimes it takes darkness for us to understand our true self and understand our need of God. Ultimately, Jesus passed through the darkness of the tomb, came out the other side and said, I've defeated death. And and that's the the ultimate hope for each of us, that as, as we deal with struggles, as we deal with weaknesses, as we deal with hurts, as we deal with monsters and fears inside of us that that threaten to take over our lives and our personalities and our relationships. As, as we deal with all of that, we say, you know, they're, they're there. They're there. I'm, I'm ignoring them isn't going to make me a better person. But, but I believe that I can, uh, they're not going to defeat me because Jesus went through the darkness and came out the other side, and I will too, because Jesus is with me. That makes a difference to how we go about our lives. We're going to transition to the Lord's Supper that reminds us of the darkness that Jesus went through for us. But I wonder if there's anyone that I can pray for this morning. If you don't want to do so, to, to raise your hand publicly, I understand that. I encourage you to find somebody that you can, that you trust, who can pray with you and for you. And uh, start eliminating or start fighting the, uh, the darkness that's in your life. Amen. Before we, we go to the Lord's Supper, I want to, uh, want to do something a little different. And uh, uh, I'm putting putting you on the spot, Jim and, and Debbie. Um, we're so glad to have you with us today. I just wonder if each of you would, would come up the front here with me and, and join me for just a moment. Okay. Jim's been part of Lawson Road for 18 years. 18 years. Well, part of Lawson Road or gone from Lawson Road? We've been gone for 18 years. Yeah, gone from Lawson Road for 18 years. Part of Lawson Road much longer than, than that. And, um, and, and so many of us here today um, weren't here 18 years ago <laughs> uh, when, when Jim and, and Debbie uh, were. But Jim was active and involved in the church here. Uh, they left 
to go down to North Carolina to uh, uh, work with the Cherokee Nation and uh, with the church, church there. And 18 years uh, there. And um, not always the, the easiest position. Um, a, a lot of challenges. And I, I admire so much Jim's persistence and dedication right. uh, to, to that. Um, you, you can. Yeah, yeah, you're going to mess me up now. We, we, uh, Here, let me we, we came from far and wide. We came from New England, Wyoming, Mississippi. They don't say Mississippi there, they just say Mississippi. <laughs> Tennessee, North Carolina, and we all came home yeah. to a place where we were raised. Amen. And we're so grateful. Where we can come and know that we have family still. If we don't know any of y'all anymore, you're still family. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. And we thank you for that. That's all I had to say. Okay. And now. Um, and so, 18 years there. And we're so glad that, that Jim and Debbie and the family could come back and uh, have the, the service yesterday. Many of you know that we've been praying for Jim and Debbie over the last, I don't know, year, 18 months, as Jim has um, battled cancer. And uh, at this point, the, the prognosis is not good. Day to day. Day to day. Right? And, uh, and so I want to just take an opportunity to, uh, to bless each of them. What I would ask is if you were here 18 years ago, would you come up? I would, would love you just to put a hand, put an arm on Jim, Debbie, or someone that's next to them. So, uh, and we're going to say a prayer. So. I wasn't here 18 years ago. As I put the lesson together this morning, there were so many different situations that I thought of in the congregation of people that have darkness, that have dragons, that have monsters, some external, some internal. And I promise I didn't have any one person in my mind that, uh, Jim, this is your moment of darkness. And uh, we're so grateful that Jesus went through the tomb came out the other side, and that's our hope. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are our Father. You're the Father of each of us. You are the King of our, our lives, King of your kingdom. And uh, we are uh, uh, so beyond words that your Spirit lives within us, that, that we are bound together that across the, across the years, across the miles, um, through so many different experiences that we are always your children, always brothers and sisters of each other. 
And so, Father, I just want to lift up to you, Jim and Debbie, and we don't know the exact steps that their path is going to take in the days ahead. Yeah. We know the, the, the doctors tell us what the destination will be and that it will be sooner than we would like it to be for mm-hmm. Jim. And Father, we just, we hurt because a loved one is hurting. But Father, we want to place our trust in you at this time. We want to place Jim and Debbie, their family, in, in your hands yeah. and just ask that you be with them each step of everything that lies ahead. Father, we love you. We love Jim and Debbie. Yes. And we just trust them to you. Thank you. Thank you for fighting our darkness. Mm-hmm. Thank you for defeating our darkness. And thank you that death is never the final word for any of us. Amen. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.